And Rhino, he's not even an issue. I don't sweat Rhino. Rhino's got him set up on the rope right here. Dan Rhino, brought to you, of course, by our friends at ProWrestling.com. It has been a while since we've spoken, since we've been able to gather here together on the Rhino Wrestling Review, but hopefully you've been keeping tabs on me and my buddy Dougie Wrestling and also Mr. Main Event over on STF Underground, also available on ProWrestling.com and all podcast platforms. Every Friday it drops, like I said, on the aforementioned ProWrestling.com and wherever you get your podcasts. So we've been talking uh, current stuff over on STF Underground. And I want to talk about a little bit of history on this episode and actually the next few episodes. Because as I record this, it is March 2021 and March of course is Women's History Month and for the next few episodes we're going to be talking about the history of women in professional wrestling and what a long strange journey it has been when I originally wanted to do an episode to honor the women in pro wrestling history I figured that I would kind of sit down and get out a you know work out a format work out a an outline and do a show that maybe an hour an hour and a half that kind of encompassed the entire history of women's pro wrestling and as I got into it and I started with the first woman I'm going to talk about today I realized that I had spent uh, about four hours (laughs) just researching her career and her impact on pro wrestling and and just kind of trying to gather all that information together and organized it in a way that was palatable but also honored her and also made sense for the the flow of the show and I quickly realized that I can't do the history of women's wrestling in one episode so it is going to be more likely three episodes this this being the first installment and instead of trying to get it it all in in one episode i am going to go with different eras here and today we are going to talk about the three m's we're going to talk about mildred may and moolah that being mildred burke may young and the fabulous moolah so i hope you guys enjoy uh, this little journey that i'm going to take you on I want to do these women justice I want to honor them in a way that I feel like 
they deserve and sometimes they get overlooked on their impact on how far pro, women's pro wrestling has come to the point where we're main, main eventing major shows, main eventing television, main eventing pay-per-view, and us as pro wrestling fans are actively seeking out women's pro wrestling matches and women's pro wrestling feuds that we want to see. And that wasn't always the case. You know, women's pro wrestling, even in, in my lifetime, was popcorn time it was a bathroom time it was channel changing fodder and that's unfortunate because we've we're seeing today the to pardon a phrase the evolution of women in pro wrestling and how great they can tell stories in the ring how great of athletes they are how engaging they are as personalities so it was very important to me to, to really do my, my homework on this and take my time and make sure that I can do this correctly and that I can do this right. So I'm going to go all the way back to the very beginning because pro wrestling as we know it today started in the carnivals. I mean, if you could beat the circus-appointed wrestler or just avoid being pinned or submitted for a specific amount of time back in the carnival days, you won a prize. And just like today's pro wrestling, it always, it wasn't always what it seemed to be on the surface. You know, often someone from the crowd would, would take on the, the circus wrestler and have a bit of success and maybe even win. Only thing was, the sometimes the person from the crowd was in on the scheme. He was, he or she was trying to give the patrons the thought that they had a chance of winning, and would lure these marks into losing their money that's where the the term mark comes from is from the the circus industry where these circus performers and uh, circus game runners would identify people in the crowd that they could easily con or that they could easily get money out of and those were your marks those were the people that you really felt like you could take advantage of and influence them to the point where they think they got a chance to win and they're willing to give up their money to do so. But the fact that a lot of these circus matches were fixed in that way, that, that's where our sports entertainment comes from. And it wouldn't be long before women would get in on this circus act as well. And on the carnival side, when we talk about women's wrestling it was a mix of athleticism of course but there was also a fetishized if that's even a word sex appeal to it and the gawkers would line up and they'd pay good money to see these women wrestle one another or wrestle one of the carnival patrons and they would put each other in suggestively sexual positions and basically put on a show so there was athleticism involved, but it wasn't, it was almost like exploitive. You know, it wasn't about honoring the athleticism of these women, you know, like a carnival strongman would be. It was about giving the crowd some kind of titillation that they would be interested in and that they would want to pay money for as well. So you had patrons paying money not only to watch these women's matchups at these carnivals, but also like I mentioned earlier, paying for the opportunity to to win a prize by either pinning 
one of the the female wrestlers or by submitting one of the female wrestlers or just avoiding being pinned or submitted for a specific amount of time but the fact was you had those those plants in the crowd but then you that was to entice the actual customer to come up and try their luck and so many of them did and so many of them were legitimately physically dominated by these awesomely athletic women and you got to remember this is the the late 1800s we're talking about women women wouldn't even get the right to vote until 1920 so the fact that women were often physically dominating men at these traveling circuses it drew a lot of different emotions you know this is in the middle of susan b anthony and elizabeth Cady stanton fighting for the for women's right to vote and getting death threats for it you know it was a weird time and we, we say that all the time no matter what time you live in there's weird things going on it was a weird time in our history that we look back on it now and it seems just ridiculous to us that that people would have that kind of reaction to just women just wanting to have the right to vote and just wanting to make more than just 25 percent of what men were making which is what the going rate was at the time it seems you know insane to us that that's the way the world was but then you think you know just 60 years ago we had uh, different drinking fountains for white people and people of color we had different swimming pools that that uh, white people and people of color couldn't couldn't swim in together it no matter how far back we look in history and it wasn't really that long ago there's always something that that kind of stands out as shocking to us that that's the way the world functioned at the time but women were not looked at in a way that they were they were equal to men and the fact that these women were were dominating these men at these these carnival wrestling events like i said it it elicited a lot of emotions there was a, a lot of uh, men that felt like it was their duty to go out there and uh, defeat the woman in a, in a wrestling match especially after their buddy had just been defeated it was it was their duty to stand up for the male gender and to reinforce the the dominance of the male gender at the time and if you were defeated you know there was a, a ton of embarrassment but it was the sheer uniqueness of this presentation that kept people wanting to come back and at the time women's wrestlers were just seen as carnival freak show attractions if they were going to become legitimized if they they were going to be seen as in at the same level and presented the same way alongside the men on actual pro wrestling cards in actual arenas and actual halls around the country they needed something big to legitimize them and there was this newspaper called the national police gazette and it was kind of like a national inquirer type paper that specialized in like true crime stories and more racy smutty content than the other more legitimized newspapers did uh, the things that the the other newspapers avoided the national police gazette would be the ones who would use this to entice people to buy their newspapers by being unique so women's wrestling was a natural fit for the gazette to cover and it became a popular topic among their readers 
1891, the Gazette sponsored the first recognized women's wrestling championship, which would be awarded to Josie Walford, who had come up through the carnival circuit as a with a strong woman routine. And she called herself Minerva, which is named after the Roman goddess of wisdom. And Walford was the real deal. I mean, she was trained by her husband, the, the professor Charlie Blatt. He was a power lifter and a wrestler, and he taught Josie all the tricks he knew. And Walford defended her championship in the back rooms of bars and bouts that were not regulated by any governing body or any state commission. She defended the title against men and women, but male challengers were limited to amateurs, and they could not outweigh Walford by more than 20 pounds. And that was a common stipulation that was used during the open challenges at the carnivals. They're usually, you couldn't have like a 400 pound guy come in because then you're just, you're not talking about technique, you're just talking about sheer mass. So you had to be within 20 pounds of the female competitor. And records are really hard to find. I had a really difficult time finding out about the end of Minerva's career, but she seems to have given up the title around 1901. And that's when she went back to doing feats, the feats of strength that she started her career in, in the carnivals until about 1910. And then unfortunately she passed away in 1923. But even with this little boost that she had given to the, the women's wrestling industry, women's wrestling was still not regulated by athletic commissions and still not presented in the big gyms and auditoriums alongside the men. It was still an under-the-radar backroom presentation. But women's wrestling wouldn't really start getting the mainstream appeal that it's built upon to get to where it is today without the first M that we're going to talk about, and that being Mildred Burke. So... We set it up for you. It was 1932. Mildred Bliss was her real name, which is a great wrestling name, by the way. Uh, she was 17 years old, a single mother, a waitress at a restaurant on an Indian reservation in New Mexico, and just wanted to get out any way she could. And she eventually did this because back then, a lot of the ways for, for women to advance was to get married, unfortunately. You know, to find uh, a husband who who had money and, you know, maybe you could use that to build, to build a better life for yourself, to, you know, expand your life to, to a better level. But it was often just about survival. You know, there was a lot, so many marriages that were made out of necessity rather than out of love. And Mildred ended up marrying a man named Joseph Schaefer a man nearly twice her age. And it would be Schaefer who took Mildred to her first wrestling show where she fell in love with the sport and decided that this is going to be my path. This is what I want to do with my life. And, of course, her husband laughed her off, laughed off her dream, got Mildred pregnant again, and left. So Mildred moved back in with her mother and started waitressing again, this time in Kansas City at a diner owned by her mother. And... It would be a couple years later in 1934 when she met Billy Wolf, a former wrestler who had actually left his wife years before to run off with a female wrestler named Barbara Ware. And they would do the small show and circus circuit with Barbara taking on challengers from the audience. But it would be in these meetings at the diner that 
a romance would form between Mildred and Billy Wolf. And after Mildred gave birth to her child that she had had with her previous husband, she begged Billy for the opportunity to train. And Billy Wolf eventually caved in and gave it to her. And I found a quote that Billy Wolf said, quote, I hired a kid and paid him a quarter to get into the ring with Mildred. I said to him, you give it to her so good that she'll never come around here bothering us again. Well, this little boy gets into the ring and does his level best, but she knocks him out so fast that it leaves me thinking that maybe she's got something that I didn't see before, unquote. So Mildred left her mom against her mom's wishes, took her kid, Billy Wolf dumped his current traveling attraction, Barbara Ware. You see a pattern here with this guy? Was married, left uh, his wife for a wrestler, leaving his wife for a new prospective wrestler. You're going to see this pop up a lot when we talk about the character of Billy Wolf in this story. But he took Mildred on the road as his new attraction. So unfortunately, Mildred's mom ended up having to sell her diner since she didn't have Mildred's help. And... When this happened, Billy Wolf was hoping to get his hands on some of that cash from the sale. Well, when Mildred said she wasn't involved in the sale of the diner, she got her first taste of Billy Wolf's bad side. As he said, he wouldn't marry Mildred for one year. Essentially making her audition, giving her a one-year audition for the right to be his wife. I think the theme that you're going to see pop up here is that Billy Wolf was a huge piece of crap. He cheated on Mildred, he beat her infant son, and Mildred Bliss was kind of stuck in this bad relationship because she didn't have a lot of options as far as jobs, as far as money, as far as security, and most of all, if she wanted to follow her dream, she needed to stay with Billy Wolf. That was the only way that she was going to have a chance to be able to follow her dream because of, of his promotions. So Mildred knew she didn't have the contacts. She knew she didn't have the experience to land bookings without Billy Wolf. So despite all this, Mildred Burke is, she's working the carnival circuit. She's taking on all comers. She's, they're offering $25 to anyone who can beat her by pin or submission. And like I said, men had to be within 20 pounds of her weight, which was 115 pounds. And each contest had a 10-minute time limit. And Billy Wolf was like the Flavor Flav hype man, ticket seller, you know, hyping up the crowd to take a chance at Mildred. And this was around the time that Mildred Bliss officially became Mildred Burke, which was the, the name change was rumored to be because Billy wanted to make Mildred sound more Irish in order to appeal to a large section of the carnival clientele. So after the summer carnival season was over, Billy Wolf and Mildred tried to cross over into the arena wrestling scene that was controlled by men's wrestling. But it was very tough to find matchups for her because matches between male and female wrestlers were still outlawed in most of the country and there were very few credible female wrestlers as challengers. So Billy Wolf started taking out ads in newspapers, open challenges in select cities for men to wrestle Mildred and it had to be in select cities because like I said in most of the country matches between men and women were outlawed 
But even then, by taking out ads, opponents were tough to find because, kind of like we mentioned before, it's a no-win situation for them. It's especially embarrassing if they lost. But Mildred Burke was becoming such a draw. She was starting to draw big crowds. And this is even around the time when interest in the men's side of pro wrestling was starting to drop. And Mildred Burke was starting to to fill that void and have a lot of success. But the big feud that put Mildred Burke and women's wrestling on the map was her showdowns with Clara Mortensen. And they traveled all around the Southeast and the Midwest. And Mortensen would be the one that would go over. She would be the one that would win these worked bouts because she had been on the wrestling scene for a lot longer. So this is where the sports entertainment side came in where Mildred's not legitimately trying to pin men and women at these carnival shows. We get into the sports entertainment side and the the endings are worked. The endings are, are predetermined. And because Clara was the more veteran performer, Clara Mortensen would be the one that would go over in these matches. And that really didn't sit well with Mildred because she knew that she was the baddest lady around. She knew that if this was a shoot fight that she would legitimately be able to defeat Clara. So this created a ton of animosity between Mildred Burke and Clara Mortensen. And Burke eventually threatened to shoot on Mortensen if she wasn't if she wasn't going to start being booked to win, she says, well, I'm just going to shoot on her in the ring and make her look terrible, and I'm going to ruin this whole thing for everybody. And the gravy train's going to leave the station. So it finally happened January 28, 1937, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in front of, if you believe it, 6,157 fans back in 1937 for a women's main event. It was, the, at the time, the most publicized women's match ever. And many believe this was the start of women's modern wrestling as in regards to professional wrestling. They turned hundreds of fans away at the door in, in the rematches, like I said, around the Midwest and the Southeast. And this, this feud created an animosity that, that lasted forever between Clara and Mildred. I mean, these ladies hated each other until the day they died. Because more than 40 years later, when the Cauliflower Alley Club invited both women to its annual reunion, they both refused to attend if the other one would be there. <laughs> so the, the fact that they had a legitimate beef that, that carried on for, for that long until the day they died uh, just shows you how intense this feud was. And it, like I said, it was widely considered to be the start of what we know today as... Uh, the current state of women's pro wrestling. So that's Mildred Burke's story in a nutshell. But we can't talk about the history of women's wrestling without talking about the next M on our list, and that being Mae Young. And Mae Young was on the high school boys wrestling team and the kicker on the football team in the freaking 1930s when women had less than a decade ago just gotten the right to vote. And Mae Young is on the boys' wrestling team and the boys' football team. So it's unheard of. It's, it's, that's hard to comprehend today. It does happen. We do have uh, very successful women's wrestlers that, that wrestle on men's teams because they don't have women's teams available because they don't have enough women at their schools to, to be able to field a team. So a lot of times uh, 
female wrestlers coming up on the amateur ranks will, will wrestle the guys until they get to a, a higher level or to a club level. And every once in a while you'll see a story about uh, a high school or college student who is on the, the boys football team because there is no girls football team. But when you think about 80 years ago and how unique that was back then, that just shows you the kind of person we, we're talking about when we talk about Mae Young. And she wasn't smartened up to the world of pro wrestling and at the time. And the legend goes that Mae got her start in pro wrestling when she went to a card in 1939 and saw Mildred Burke and tried to challenge Mildred Burke thinking that well I'm a legitimate wrestler there's no reason why this woman should be any tougher than me and Mae Young claims that she didn't get a match with Mildred but instead was given a shoot match against a woman named Gladys Gillum and Mae claims that and this is all according to to Mae and there's there's always contradicting stories when we talk about history, but May says that she quickly won and that the aforementioned Billy Wolf offered her a job. And May Young quickly became one of the top heels in the business, either male or female. And like I said before, she was a legit shooter. She carried herself in the real world like the badass she was. And May wasn't concerned, although she was very pretty, she wasn't concerned about being a pinup model version of a female wrestler. She cussed like a sailor, she smoked cigars, she wore men's clothes, and she was physically able to assert herself if and when a man tried to take favors with her, which unfortunately a lot of the men did with the female wrestlers back then, including, like I said, Billy Wolf. So May started her run in the early 1940s. And by the late 1940s, she was one of the, not only the top female wrestlers in the business, but she was also one of the top trainers in the business, with one of her top students being somebody that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, Lillian Ellison, who would later become known as the Fabulous Moolah. And this was the start of their crazy 60-year friendship that would see them highlighting segments on primetime television and taking bumps on primetime television in their 70s but we will get more to the end of may's career here in a second let's talk about her prime years here may ended up wrestling in either six or seven different decades depending on who you ask she was the nwa florida champion the nwa u.s champion she was the nwa tag champ with various partners at different points in her career and there is little doubt that she was among the toughest of any of the women's wrestlers in the 40s and the early 50s and when Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf separated Mae Young stayed on with Burke and went on tours of Japan with her where they often made a vented against each other and Mae was one of the few women who was successful downstairs in the notorious heart dungeon and held her own and earned the the respect of the entire Hart family because of how tough she was. And throughout her, her career, Mae Young had a few brief retirements but always found her way back to pro wrestling. Even though by the 1970s, bookings were really drying up as women's wrestling was losing a lot of its luster and popularity. But Mae Young was introduced to a new generation of wrestling fans in 1999 
when she and Moolah got involved in an angle with Jeff Jarrett on SmackDown. And Jeff at the time was feuding with China and doing this, I'm, I'm a huge misogynist, asshole to women character. And the segment ended up with Jeff inviting Moolah and May into the ring and busting a guitar over Moolah's head and putting May in a spinning toehold. And this was the start of May and Moolah doing comedy bits and athletic bits for the WWF at the time. And May getting into some of the craziest angles and spots ever seen in wrestling. May got stripped down to her bra and panties at 76 years old in a handicapped evening gown match against Ivory in 1999. May Young won the Miss Royal Rumble bikini contest at the 2000 Royal Rumble and took a couple of horrific power bombs from the Dudleys. One off the top rope through a table and the other off the entrance stage through a table. And Bubba Ray Dudley claims that May said, quote, Hey, hot shot, if you're going to slam me, you slam me like one of the boys, unquote. And we cannot forget that May Young also did an infamous angle where she announced that she was pregnant at the age of 77 with Mark Henry's baby and later gave birth to a rubber prosthetic hand on television. <laughs> Those are real words that just came out of my mouth. Uh, May was inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2004, the WWE Hall of Fame in 2008, and when May passed at the age of 90, Vince McMahon said, quote, There will never be another May Young. Her longevity in sports entertainment may never be matched, and I will forever be grateful for all her contributions to the industry, unquote. And without May's training, and without her connections to Vince McMahon, we may never have been exposed to the final M that we're going to talk about on this episode, that being Moolah, the fabulous Moolah. For over 30 years, Moolah was the premier attraction in women's wrestling. She had a ridiculously long and successful run as the top draw in women's wrestling. And it was when a teenage Moolah was in front of, was in the front row watching a Mildred Burke match that she knew she wanted to become a wrestler. You see how it all kind of goes, kind of filters back to Mildred Burke, which I think is really cool. But her father said it was no profession for a lady. So a teenage Moolah ended up eloping with a man named Walter Carroll, and she had a daughter. But the relationship with Walter didn't last long. And Moolah saw this unsuccessful marriage as a sort of a sign that she needed to reinvigorate her dream of becoming a pro wrestler. And at the time, if you wanted to be a women's pro wrestler, you really had to hitch your wagon to, guess who? Billy Wolf. Even though everyone knew that Billy Wolf was a huge piece of crap. And Billy told Moolah that she was too little, that she should go home, that she should be a secretary. But Moolah, real name Lillian Ellison, like I said before, was persistent and eventually got a job with Billy Wolf's troop of ladies, and Moolah would wrestle her first match in 1948. And the thing about Moolah is that she was one of the few girls who refused to sleep with Billy Wolf in exchange for better bookings. This was a super unfortunate byproduct of the way the women's wrestling business was set up, and that if you wanted good bookings, you wanted to get any kind of bookings at all, not just good ones, just any kind of paying gigs, 
you were often expected to exchange sexual favors for these preferential bookings and preferential treatment but Mula was one of the few girls who just refused to do it so her relationship with Billy Wolf didn't last awfully long and this kind of caused Mula to have a lot of stops and starts to her career mainly because she refused to acquiesce to the pressures put on her by the men in her life she ended up being a valet for nature boy Buddy Rogers, who was one of the biggest stars in the in the men's pro wrestling scene at the time. And she was booked as Slave Girl Moolah. And she acted as Billy's personal assistant and personal valet and personal provider of all things. And it was during this time that she married a wrestler named Johnny Long. And Johnny Long helped her get a lot of her bookings, including the Buddy Rogers one. But Johnny Long, like so many of the male promoters of women's wrestling, was an unfaithful husband. And to add to Moolah's troubles, Moolah was being pressured into a sexual relationship with Buddy Rogers. So she's very overwhelmed on all fronts here. Just trying to follow her dream, but keep, keep running into roadblocks and obstacles along the way. And Moolah had already burned her bridge with Billy Wolf. And now she's with her current husband, who she's in a horrible relationship, and she's uh, trying to be forced into doing uh, sexual favors for, for Buddy Rogers, who was one of the biggest stars, like I said, in the business at the time. But Mula stuck to her gun. She st stood her ground, and she reported Buddy Rogers to the promoter for his actions. And that ended up costing... Mula bookings in that area too because of her pride and Mula felt that that was more important than changing who she was as a person in order to get a leg up on the pro wrestling business so Mula ended up leaving Johnny Long and she remarried another wrestler named Buddy Lee and she left New York and went to South Carolina and this is where Mula it, it ends up being a mixed bag for her career because she ends up starting the most successful, probably the most successful run in women's wrestling history. But it's also where she starts her, some would say, infamous career as a trainer of women's wrestlers. And Mula started lobbying for promoters to use her girls, use the, the ladies she was training on their cards, including... A, perform a promoter named Vincent J. McMahon, the father of the current uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, who runs the WWE Empire. And at the time, Vince, Vincent J. now had control of many of the Northeast Territories. And Paul Bowser, who controlled Boston, also started to use Moolah's Girls. And all those territories, kind of along that East Coast area, came together and created their own women's championship. And Mula won a one-night tournament in 1956 to win that inaugural title. And this was where she dropped the slave girl Mula name and became the fabulous Mula. And this would also start a, a run that she would hold for pretty much the majority of the next 28 years. Mula was seen as the top women's champion in the business. 
So like I said, Moolah basically controlled the women's wrestling scene for the next 30 or so years as a wrestler, but mainly as the top provider of talent through her female trainees. And this is also where the history, we can't talk about Moolah without talking about the history that gets a bit sketchy. Her trainees say they, many of her trainees say that they were obligated to rent a room at Moolah's compound and they were charged room and board for the training. And Moolah controlled all the bookings and you couldn't get, if you were trained by Moolah, you couldn't get booked unless it was through Moolah. And Moolah took a large chunk of the payoffs, anywhere between 25 to 50 percent, depending on who the talent was. And this way, Moolah could keep her trainees in debt for as long as she liked. Because if you were a women's pro wrestler, Moolah was really the only person that people went through for to get access to women's wrestlers on their cards and on their rosters in that time period. You had to pay to live at the compound, and she would take a large chunk of your money, and allegedly, if a promoter wanted sexual favors as part of the booking that was expected. A lot of people use the word pimp for Mua because she was sending these ladies out for these wrestling promotions and these wrestling matches but they were also expected to give sexual favors along the way. And some of the ladies even say they weren't allowed to have their own bank accounts when they trained at Mula's. So it was very successful for Moolah, but this kind of became a dark time for women's wrestling. And Dave Meltzer actually said, quote, During the period Moolah controlled women's wrestling, the popularity and product didn't evolve. The women in the 1940s and the 1950s, even the late 1950s in some places like Florida, they were headlining shows. The idea that women can't headline came years later because they used to headline and they were successful. Women's wrestling under her tutelage, and I don't know if it's her fault, went way, way down, unquote. So the fact that for so long we felt like women's wrestling was a popcorn match or a match that was on the undercard or maybe there would be one match on an entire month of, of pro wrestling programming in either AWA or USWA or WCW or WWE or NWA for the longest time. That idea that we didn't think that women could main event, that was a idea that was put into our brains by this era here. Because in the 1940s and 1950s, according to, to Meltzer, they were, women were headlining events and drawing big crowds and being very successful. But what was a very successful era for Moolah was not a very successful era for women's wrestling. But you cannot talk about the history of women's wrestling and the evolution of it without talking about the years that Moolah was at the top of the business. So there's a lot of resentment over the complicated history of Moolah and the fact that she kept the women's championship hostage for almost 30 years but good or bad you can't deny her impact on the business and the fact that she attained legendary status in her career and as I mentioned earlier that career had a resurgence in the Attitude Era with Moolah and Mae Young being staples 
of WWE programming and Mula even winning the WWE women's title in 1999 at the age of 76 by defeating Ivory and then a few years later defeating Victoria in 2003 which which was a match that was pr a promised gift to her years before for Mula's 80th birthday yes an 80 year old Mula was still competing in WWE rings so, like I said, no matter what you feel about the complicated history, you cannot deny Moolah's impact. And I think when we talk about history, we have to take the good with the bad. You cannot look through history with, with rose-colored glasses, because if you do that, you do not see the flaws. And we are not evolving and moving forward as a people and as a culture and as a byproduct of that, pro wrestling is not evolving without the bad things that have happened in the past, too, along with the good, so that we can actually be able to, to see the progress. We can, we can actually be able to, to process the, the progression of, of the business. And like I said, as, us as, as a people, when we talk about we talk about wars and we talk about segregation and we talk about uh, the mistakes that have been made in the past if you don't learn from them you're doomed to repeat them and that also applies to, to pro wrestling so when we talk about some of these things you know it's important to look at both sides of the coin and we can't move forward in pro wrestling without kind of looking at the shader, shadier side of our past so uh, big downer there at the end for you guys. Sorry about that. But I hope you enjoyed this first episode as I take a journey through the history of women in pro wrestling. And like I said, this is a celebration of Women's History Month as we record this in March of 2021. Uh, this will extend out of Women's History Month because there's a lot of research to do for each episode. So there's going to be a little bit of space between each episode. But for the next episode, we are going to move forward in time. What was happening around the world around the time that Mula was controlling the North American women's pro wrestling scene? And how did Mula's run, that uh, three-decade run as the top champion in the United States, come to an end? And who was the next person up? to kind of carry the flag for women's uh, wrestling going forward. We are eventually going to get all the way up to the current product where we've got some of the greatest athletes, men or women, in any sport. We have some of the greatest athletes and some of the greatest performers competing in wrestling rings now that just happen to be female. And we are going to eventually celebrate all of them throughout history as we go forward with these next few episodes on the Rhino Wrestling Review brought to you by our friends at ProWrestling.com as we explore the history of women's pro wrestling in celebration of Women's History Month. If you are enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you are using. Uh, also check us out on ProWrestling.com and check out all the other awesome news and notes and interviews that are on ProWrestling.com, including our buddy Doug E. Wrestling over at the STF Underground Podcast, which drops every Friday 
on ProWrestling.com with a lot more regularity than, than this show. But it is a different show. Try to make that a different presentation than this one to give you guys a little bit of variety from the ProWrestling.com family. But that drops every Friday on ProWrestling.com. And I am on there most weeks. Not every week, but I am on there most weeks. Uh, just along for the great ride with Dougie Wrestling and Mr. Main Event and the awesome things that they do over at STF Underground. So check that out on ProWrestling.com and your favorite podcast platform as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Rhino, D-A-N-R-Y-N-O. The show is at Rhino underscore wrestling. That's R-Y-N-O underscore wrestling. You can email us, rhinowrestlingreview at gmail.com. From time to time, we will do mailbag episodes, but I will respond to every email with your question or comment, even if you just want to tell me something that you like about the show or something that you don't like about the show that we can improve to make better, uh, please let us know. Thanks to everybody for downloading, listening, and subscribing. It is my pleasure to bring this show to you. And don't kick out of each other's finishers. See ya! It's the R to the Y, N to the O, on a block like a tortoise with a slow, on a block like a baker cause I'm picking up my dough, and when I'm in the booth like I'm cooking.